This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Gordon Wood is a renowned scholar of American history. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. He's won the Bancroft Prize. His books have been national bestsellers, but more importantly than that, they have had a decisive impact upon American intellectual life. Professor Wood graduated with his PhD from Harvard University and since then has enjoyed a prolific career in academia. He has taught history at Harvard University, the College of William and Mary, and Brown University. He has also been a professor at Cambridge University in Great Britain. He's written so many books, many of them have been award-winning books. His book entitled The Creation of the American Republic 1776 to 1787 won the Bancroft Prize in American History. In 2010, he received the National Humanities Medal from President Barack Obama. I've learned a great deal from every one of Professor Wood's books. I am deeply indebted to him as a scholar and as a public intellectual and as a specialist in American history. Among his books, one of my favorites is Revolutionary Characters. But today, we're here to talk about his newest book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Republic. Professor Gordon Wood, welcome to Thinking in Public. Glad to be here. Professor Wood, you are one of the most prolific and respected uh, historians of, uh, of American history. Your most recent book is Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution, published by Oxford University Press. Professor Wood, I have to tell you, I, I've read, I think, every major book you have written until now, and uh, you really still had a lot more to say. Tell us about this book. Well, it is a kind of distillation of my thinking over the last uh, half century or so. Uh, it, it grew out of a series of lectures that I gave at Northwestern Law School on the founding, on the constitutional aspects of the founding. I'm not saying that the revolution was only a constitutional uh, revolution. I believe it was far more than that. But I focused on the constitutional changes that took place as a result of our revolution. Uh, beginning with the imperial debate, going through the state constitution making, the federal constitution, and uh, the slavery issue in the convention, and then um, a, a final chapter that deals with uh, what I think is the, uh, I call it the great demarcation of the difference between public and private that emerges as a result of the revolution. And then I have an epilogue that happens to focus on my my own state of Rhode Island and, and why they didn't come to the convention and then what happened to Rhode Island in a very few pages over the next, uh, over the next century. So that it, quick, quick summary of what the book is about. Well, following uh, your previous writings, and by the way, uh, your books have won awards ranging from the Pulitzer Prize to the Bancroft uh, Award. Uh, You've had such a determinative influence in how we understand the American Revolution and end that era. I want to talk to you at two different levels. First, about this book and your, your argument in this book, and secondly, about history, American history in particular. But uh, about this book, you make the argument that America's relationship or the relationship of Americans to the Constitution is basically unique among all the peoples of the earth. Uh, yeah, I think you make that argument very, very well. Yes, I think that we have a peculiar relationship to our founding. 
uh, and uh, we we hold these founders as being especially important. And, and I think it's because we lack um, a, a normal kind of uh, uh, ethnic base to our nationals. We're not a nation in the usual sense of the term. There's no there's no common ancestry ancestry, and there wasn't even at the outset a common ancestry. Uh, John Adams was just bewildered by it. He said, we are an omnium gatherum. We have so many different peoples here. And he's talking about 1800, little though he would be appalled at the diversity that we have today because it, we have the whole world in the United States. And so we're unlike, say, the French or the, or the Germans or the, or the English who have a sense of being uh, a common ancestry, that, that nationalism. Uh, and of course, this has made us much more able to handle immigrants than the, than the states of Europe. But lacking a common ancestry, what is it that holds us together? What's our common bond? Well, I think Abraham Lincoln put his finger on it. And at the time, just before the Civil War, he was concerned about the diversity and he mentioned all these people, Swedes, French, Irish, English, uh, and so on, in, in Germans, in, in America. And how, how would we hold these people together? And the immigrants were pouring in. And, and he said, well, what, what holds them together is, is, uh, is, is, is he, he focused on the Declaration of Independence, but I think, and the, the, the notion that all men are created equal. But I think by implication, he was implying all of the documents and principles that embodied in those uh, in those documents, and he he said these these things make make us one with the founders, as if they are blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote these documents. I mean, I, that's an incredible image he has. Indeed, and I think that that, uh, that that's what why we focus on the founders, and, and it's Lincoln who, who really called attention to that 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 connection we have. Uh, it's if we don't if we didn't have these these principles embodied in these documents, uh, I'm not sure how we would hold together. Uh, we would be a very different place. And we are indeed, uh, though continuous in some ways, a very different place than England with its unwritten constitution. And as you mentioned, we really don't have any access to the early constitutional debates in England. But we have incredible access to the constitutional d debates in the United States. You point out that not only were the documents known as the Federalist, you know, circulated, uh, but uh, they're still cited today, even by the Supreme Court justices in, in rendering decisions. That's right. We give, we, yes, we, we give, they're almost sacred documents, these, the Federalist papers, papers even though they were uh, essentially high-level propaganda on behalf of the Constitution. Uh, they, but we, in addition, we have the debates being collected, the debates over the ratification being collected in, well, I think there's 25 or, or almost 30 volumes now, and I'm not sure they're quite done by the university, uh, by uh, the Wisconsin Historical Society. Uh, and it's just an incredible uh, collection of, of documents about all the principles of, of politics embodied in, in these documents. And, and it's just a a uh, wonderful source for political theorists and historians for, for decades or eons to come. As long as the United States exists, uh, those documents will be, will be studied and, and uh, used. You know, I, uh, I tend to read an author through the author's previous works. That's just 
kind of the way my mind works and, and probably reflective of the way the author's mind works. And uh, so um, I'm very familiar with your argument and the radicalism of the American Revolution. And then we come to this book. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, the part I enjoyed the most uh, about your most recent book is how you trace the imperial debate, and then, as we shall see, the debate inside the states. But the, this imperial debate, when th- those who would become later known as the founders of the United States of America had to figure out what their argument actually would be. Right. I mean, they stumbled and fumbled their way because they're not quite clear. Uh, the English come back with, with they first of all, they start with the notion that the Stamp Act uh, was, a, was, was a tax on them, and they knew instinctively that they could not allow Parliament to be taxing them, because that would be the first step to losing complete control of their society. So they, they immediately reject that. Uh, at the same time, they, they had acceded to uh, Parliament's authority to regulate their trade and do other things, uh, but they just didn't want Parliament to tax them. Well, uh, the British come back and say, look, uh, you can't make these distinctions. Uh, if Parliament can do one thing, then it can do everything. And that Parliament ap- appealed to what was called the doctrine of sovereignty. There must be in every state one final supreme lawmaking authority, and, and that was Parliament. And of course, from the British point of view, Parliament is a benign institution. It's the source of rights. It, it passed the, the English Bill of Rights. It was the protector of English liberty against the crown tyranny. So the British found it very difficult to understand the American position because they were attacking Parliament. How could you be good Whigs and, and attack the source of freedom, the source of liberty. So this was a this is what immediately set the two sides apart. They couldn't understand one another. Uh, they lived two different experiences in the course of the colonial period. They hadn't really understood how different they were, and the debate uh, I think exposes that difference. Uh, and by the time you get to 1774, uh, the time of the coercive acts. The, uh, the, the doctrine of sovereignty forced the Americans to say, all right, if you say we have to be totally under parliament's authority or totally outside it, well, we're going to be outside it. And so they, they said we're tied only to the king. And that's why when you get to the Declaration of Independence, there's no mention of parliament or no, no right. uh, explicit mention of parliament. He said, it's all George III. You did this, this, that, and you conspired with others. That's that's a reference to Parliament. But they don't say Parliament's, they don't invoke the House of Commons or the name Parliament at all. And it's quite extraordinary since Parliament had passed the Coercive Acts, the Stamp Act, the Towns and Duties, all of these things have been passed by Parliament. But when you come to the Declaration of Independence, you won't find any mention explicitly right. of, of Parliament. Uh, So it's an extraordinary debate. And and that meant that Americans had to come to the dawning realization that tyranny could come from from different sources. So in in England, there is no doubt that historically Parliament was the the, the force for liberty, uh, for respect, uh, for rights, and over against the tyranny of the king. But the colonists came to the conclusion that as much as the king can be a despot, Parliament can be a despot. That's right, and and it 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 confused the English and and the Americans. 
Of course, it's not a very satis- their final position. Of course, isn't a very satisfactory explanation of their of their um, of their acceptance of Parliament for trade regulation. Uh, in fact, they the Congress finally says before they're in before the declaration, they they come back and say, well, we'll allow Parliament to regulate our trade from the necessity of the case, and that's the only thing they can do to kind of explain why they've allowed Parliament to regulate their trade in the in the past. Uh, so it's uh, kind of a weak uh, explanation of that. But they, they were forced into it by this doctrine of sovereignty. Of course, the doctrine of sovereignty comes back uh, 10 years later, used invoked by the anti-federalists in the ratification debates over the federal, the new federal constitution that's been created in 1787. The anti-federalists say, and they invoke this idea of sovereignty, and they say this federal government is going to become the supreme authority over us, and the states will lose all authority because there has to be in every state one final supreme lawmaking authority. And this, because of the supremacy clause in the Constitution, this will be the federal government, and it will reduce the states to uh, the, the <laughs> laying out roads and, and building fence posts and, and nothing, you know, in other words, only trivial affairs will be left to the state. And the Federalists uh, try to come back as the, as the colonists once had done and say, well, no, no, there's going to be a division of power. And the anti-Federalists invoke sovereignty once again. They say, well, the doctrine says there has to be one final, so you can't divide power. And, and finally, the solution is reached by James Wilson, who is uh, isn't as well known as as uh, as the other founders, you know, James Madison and George Washington. But Wilson's a smart lawyer from uh, from Philadelphia, and he says, "No, we're going to we're going to relocate sovereignty, just as the colonists did in 1774. They relocated sovereignty in their own state uh, or co- colonial legislatures. We're going to relocate sovereignty in the people." And it, it, he's not saying that all powers derived from the people, because that was a kind of conventional Whig uh, thought. He's saying that sovereignty, the actual lawmaking authority, is going to be located in the people. And once the Federalists, that is the supporters of the Constitution, grasp this point, they run with it and, and, and it solves all of their problems. They can see the people doling out little pieces of their power to different agents in the government. And they actually transformed the notion of representation. And in, the, in 1776, they thought, as most people did, that only the lower house was the democratic representative body. That is, it's the House of Representatives. That's the only part in which the people uh, are actually represented. The Senates have no constituents, and the governors are not representatives at all. But by 1787, Things had changed in 10 years' time so that people now see all of the agents of government as somehow representatives of the people. And the uh, House of Representatives is left with a a kind of awkward uh, uh, name because all of the institutions of government are in some way now considered to be representative. And in fact... (laughs) Yeah, Hamilton uses that very effectively in Federalist 78, where he uh, he's arguing against some of the anti-Federalists about who don't like the idea of the courts um, 
uh, curbing the power of the state legislatures. And he says, well, who do these state legislatures think, legislators think they are? They're just uh, agents of the people. But so, so aren't the courts, he says. So aren't the judiciary. They're agents of the people, too. Well, this is a, implying that the people uh, are actually have two kinds of agents, not just in the lower house of the legislature, but also in the courts. And uh, he he more or less suggests that the court, that gives the justification for the courts to set aside laws of the uh, of the that is set aside laws of the legislature that is uh, exercise judicial review. Well, of course, uh, some smart uh, other people pick this up, and they begin arguing. Well, if the judges are are uh, agents of the people, maybe maybe we ought to elect them. And sure enough. They, it takes a while, but by the Jacksonian period, we begin electing our state judges. And now I think 39 states have elected judges. Now, the federal constitution doesn't allow that. It would take a constitutional amendment. But nonetheless, that's how ideas get changed and things get right. developed. And it's interesting. I'm sure Hamilton had no intention of having judges elected, but uh, he put his foot in it by trying to imply they were kind of agents of the people. Right. And in this imperial uh, debate and in the discussion, there are two things I want to ask you about. Uh, first of all, uh, you make the, the point that uh, by, say, 1774, the uh, colonists have found themselves, uh, they made their way towards what you called the dominion theory. And, and of course, it would later right. take shape in the, uh, the British Commonwealth uh, with nations having, at least at one stage, having dominion status, which meant they were actually under one king, but uh, but they had their own government, and the king was more right. or less a, a, a symbol of uh, of cultural unity, but uh, had no despotic powers. That's right. Well, that's the present situation of the Commonwealth. That is, Canada and Australia and New Zealand uh, are all uh, members of the Commonwealth. They have a common uh, queen. They all respect the queen. Um, and they have a queen's commissioner, but that queen does not exercise any of the authority that uh, that the uh, king uh, George III would have exercised. And but that's that's the position that the Americans anticipated. Of course, that uh, that was based on the Statute of Westminster of 1931. Right. So the Americans are 200 years earlier, ex- uh, anticipating that Commonwealth notion of the uh, of the empire. It was a desperate attempt. The Commonwealth concept was forced upon Britain, but it also has had some pretty significant advantages because uh, even though they sometimes have different interests, there has never been an armed conflict between the the, uh, Dominion nations, the Commonwealth nations. And you have to, I'm just saying as an intellectual exercise, had George III been able to imagine the advantage of such a system, uh, we would still have uh, Elizabeth's uh, image on our our currency. Well, that that might be true. I think, uh, of course, the the Brits do finally, by 1778, when the French come in to the the fight and join uh, the Americans in an alliance, uh, the British are so terrified by that, that they offer the Americans everything they wanted, except in independence. That is to say, they offer them the Commonwealth status a bit late at that point to be titled yeah but it's it's too late by 1778 but that's how desperate they are when uh, when the french 
come in um, to to uh, that that makes it a, a world war and it totally changes the thing. England right. is no longer just putting down a rebellion; it's it's dealing with its historic enemy uh, around the world, and so this this is completely changes the the nature of the struggle. The uh, doctrine of sovereignty, as you discuss, at, at one point in in the book, you make a, a, a pretty astounding statement, saying that eventually the doctrine of sovereignty would mean the end of the British Empire. And uh, you can certainly see that. You said it ultimately destroyed uh, the uh, the empire on page 22. And uh, in, in retrospect, that was clearly the case. Well, it changes. Yeah, the, 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 once that gets invoked, uh, the, the, there's no... There's no going back. I mean, it, that that changes the nature of the debate. It starts as a debate over representation, but then uh, where's sovereignty going to be? And, and the British are not going to give way on that. Um, Parliament has to be sovereign as far as they're concerned. And um, they're willing to fight. Um, and they send troops. And uh, the revolution starts in April of 75, but the actual Declaration of Independence isn't until a year and few months later. Right. Although I think, I, I think the, the, the introduction of troops and, and the shooting of people pretty much dictated what was going to happen. I can't see any, there was no turning back for either side right. once that happened, once people were killed. You know, uh, you talk about another transition in your book, and uh, I had not seen anyone put it quite this way. It was extremely helpful, I thought where you talk about the colonists having to make an intellectual jump from uh, English rights to natural rights, uh, having seeing the, right. uh, the, the, the challenge of England itself as, uh, as tyranny, uh, they had been talking about rights as the rights of Englishmen. And, and then that of changed course. to natural rights. That's fundamentally important. Well, in the, during the course of the debate, some, somebody pointed out, look, we keep talking about English rights, but they knew they were on the verge of independence. We can't keep talking about English rights. So they just said, well, they're natural rights. Uh, they're not dependent on, in other words, they, they weren't any different from the from English rights. What they meant was no taxation without representation uh, and, and all of the common law rights that they had been used to. Uh, they just turned them into natural rights. But they didn't invoke any new rights at that point. They were just—they just knew that it, it was awkward to keep talking about it. They, you know, the, the debate is so strange because the Americans kept thinking they were—they were—they were defending the English Constitution that the English didn't understand their own Constitution. So they saw themselves as defending the English Constitution until almost the very end, when they finally realized that, well, we have to break from this English Constitution. And they did. And uh, what followed yeah. uh, th was a flurry of constitutionalism, especially after the, uh, the, the Revolutionary War was won. And uh, you point out something, again, that is just really, really important and I think often missed. And that is the fact that the, the real uh, constitutional experimentation took place among the states. That's right. And it's not after the revolution. It's right during the war. They almost immediately in 1776, many of the, the states, these new states, create uh, their own constitutions. And they are uh, what we're familiar with, of course, a governor, very weak uh, because they feared gubernatorial uh, power, uh, but usually an upper house, which they call the Senate. 
they pull that out of Roman history. And then they have their House of Representatives, which is what at the outset is going to be where the people. Uh, and they were used to that House of Representatives in their own colonial legislatures. They didn't have senates, but they had councils. Uh, so they were used to a, a triple tripartite uh, legislature with a governor uh, and and uh, and an upper house, sm very small one, usually around 12 men, and then a house of representatives. But now they're going to be greatly enlarged. These uh, legislatures are uh, sometimes twice or four times as large as the their colonial predecessors. And they have these senates, and then they have weak governors. Um, sometimes having no veto power, of course, no no power over legislation, and very few powers to appoint offices. Um, in some states, uh, Pennsylvania in particular, there's no executive at all. They have a multiple uh, commission, a committee to handle executive authority, but no single governor because that smacked of monarchy too much. So it's an extraordinary moment, 76, 77, creating the state constitutions. Now, some of them, Massachusetts delays its constitution making and this uh, until 1780. They have one in 1778, which is turned down by the people. Uh, and that finally in 1780, they get a constitution. The one in 78 is turned down because uh, the people felt that the legislature had drawn up the constitution and it should have a special body somebody different from the legislature drawing up the constitution. And this was a, uh, they, this is when they hit upon the convention and a separate elected body uh, to, to make constitutions. All of these things come not just by stumbling and fumbling. They, they don't foresee how everything's going to work out. They knew that the constitution should be a fundamental law, but how can you make it fundamental? How do you amend it? Well, you know, sometimes they, I think in one state, they said, well, we'll elect two successive legislatures can elect, the, to, to, can amend the constitution, or, or you have to have a super majority. They had to have some way of, of making it more fundamental. That, that takes a little while to get that straightened out. So the, the state constitution is making is terribly important, I think, in preparing them for what they do in 1787 in drawing up the federal constitution. We do get the federal constitution, and uh, the, just uh, in order to, uh, to move to some other issues I want to, to, to uh, discuss with you, uh, let me just say that you, you make a really compelling case for how the Americans came to the conclusion that the nation must have a written constitution. Unlike the unwritten English constitution, the United States had to have a written constitution. And uh, so let me ask you just to lay out that argument. Well, it isn't so hard um, when you think about it. Now, the English don't have a written constitution, but they have a lot of written documents. Right. Magna Carta, their Bill of Rights, their statutes. Um, and of course, in, in England, the statute is constitutional, which is exactly the difference between us and the, and the English. Uh, our statutes, our legislative acts are not constitutional. Uh, there's a distinction. Well, they, all of those written documents in England uh, gave Americans the notion that you had to have something fixed and it had to be somehow uh, preserved from the legislature itself. And that's what's different 
See, Parliament can change the English Constitution simply by passing an act. It's all by, it's only by custom or convention uh, that that keeps it. There's no Supreme Court in England to decide. Oh, that act you passed uh, last week is unconstitutional. Uh, they might say that, but there's no body that can declare that because what is a what is passed by the Parliament is by that fact alone constitutional. That's so different from the American notion. The legislature can can never be sure that a statute that it passes is going to be is going to be constitutional until it's passed by the by the court, uh, the Supreme Court. And so that that needed to be worked out, and it wasn't clear how that would be done. Not at all. Uh, that takes. Uh, it's not really until right. we get to the early 19th century that we have a clearer understanding of, of the Supreme Court's role in, in setting aside a, uh, uh, a statute of the, of the right. uh, judicial uh, review. But, you know, it, it's interesting, right. uh, Professor Wood, that the average American doesn't understand how that works. Uh, you know, th- they would think that uh, the Supreme Court is constantly passing judgment on whether laws are constitutional. But our separation of powers, according to the Constitution, means that uh, the, the federal courts only take up an issue as if it is a normal lawsuit. So someone has to say, I have been wronged by this legislation and, and right. you know, has to have standing uh, or I'm about to be wronged by this legislation for some kind of uh, right. uh, declaratory judgment. Uh, but otherwise, uh, the, the, in other words, we, we, there's no process of judicial review where the, the Congress sends out its, its proposed legislation to the Supreme Court in order to get some kind of sign-off. Right. No, that it's, 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 the Constitution is treated like a, like a statute that runs in the court system, and, and it has to be litigated. Uh, somebody has to, to uh, object to a statute and decide uh, that uh, we want to push this in the courts. With some kind and of claim of the, harm. Uh, right. So that, that's, that's very peculiar. Now, I think the state of Massachusetts uh, has something similar to what I think Brazil has, where you can actually, where the, uh, the legislature can ask the court whether its uh, planned law will be declared constitutional. That's peculiar to that one state. Uh, by and large, uh, there's no. The rest of the states uh, seem to follow the, uh, the the pattern of the of the federal system, where they, because the states have constitutions too, and sometimes you can have a, a the state courts can declare acts of, of of a legislature unconstitutional just for that state, based on the state's constitution, uh, in, in the state's uh, judicial system, not in the federal system. So. Uh, that peculiar notion of Massachusetts, which I don't know much about, I don't think it's exercised too often, but I, I, I remember someone telling me about it, in, uh, uh, that, that it, it's, a, it's something that's not typical of, of the United States as a whole. Uh, Professor Wood, you also point out that uh, a part of our constitutional inheritance or the inheritance from the constitutional experience and debate of the, of the founders is this a real demarcation between the public and the private? And, and again, I think most Americans right now would say, oh, it must always have been that way. But it, but it wasn't. No. Yeah. That's right. There was a real uh, uh, change. Uh, I mean, think of just uh, Harvard University was a 
public institution prior to the revolution. That is supported by tax money. It, it's, uh, it was a public corporation. The whole notion of a corporation is transformed in, in, as a result of the revolution. And that distinction between public and private is one of the great, uh, well, I call it the chapter the great demarcation because it refers to a book by uh, Professor uh, Rafe Blaufab at the University of uh, at Florida uh, State University, who uh, is a French historian, a, fr a historian of the French Revolution. And he's the one who called attention to, to uh, an earlier book I'd written about this distinction. And he felt that the same thing that was happening in France in their revolution happened in the United States. And I think that's true. And I think that need, needs to be explored more fully than I have. But it, nonetheless, you can see from the evidence I've portrayed in that one chapter that there was an extraordinary change. Uh, you know, prior to the revolution in New York City, for example, uh, the, uh, the street cleaning was done by the, the by the residents of the of the of the city. They were responsible for making sure that uh, this the area in front of their shop or their home was was cleaned. Uh, after the revolution, New York City creates under the state auspices a a, a public works department that does that work. That's a big change. And that's the kind of change that takes place elsewhere in the states. The revolution was a real revolution. Uh, and I suggest in the, in the book, uh, it's a, in, in the Northern states, it's the emergence of a middle class, uh, new people moving into authority that transforms the North uh, in a fundamental way. And the South goes off and remains, I think, more or less in the 18th century uh, with a hierarchical society based on slavery and uh, very different kinds of attitudes towards public power. Uh, and the sectional split is even enhanced by the revolution. The, the differences between the two sections, North and South, uh, not just on the slavery issue, but in a host of other ways in which government is organized and people are, are related to one another. I want to come back to your latest book, Power and Liberty, uh, in just a moment. But I want to ask you some questions about history and uh, historiography, how, for lack of a better way of putting it, you do history. And uh, there's a great debate in the United States, has been ever since Charles Beard in 1913 and his economic interpretation of the American uh, Constitution, uh, in which the, uh, the argument was uh, by these progressivist uh, uh, historians that, uh, that it was just a, an attempt to preserve privileged property that the uh, that the American Constitution, as we now know it, came about. And, and there's an entire set of arguments that flows from that all the way to the 1619 Project. You hold yeah. to a, a contrary understanding of, of how American history should be understood. Well, I, the progressive period back in early uh, 20th century um, was, I think, stimulated by the notion of a, we need a usable past. People felt that the 19th century history was getting too antiquarian. And uh, a man named Robinson who taught at Columbia actually wrote about this need for a usable past, which is picked up by Charles Beard and others. And, and we have it now, I guess you'd say in, in spades, uh, the past is gonna be very usable. I, I like to, to, to think of the past the way L.P. Hartley, who's the British novelist, 
who wrote a wonderful novel called The Go-Between. He has an opening maxim where he says, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And I think that should be the first uh, maxim of every uh, historian. Don't go back in the past looking for uh, the present. Go back to the past the way you would go to a foreign country expecting difference and not try to uh, to, to turn them into some semblance of what you're like. There's something basically unhistorical about uh, people, especially historians today, going back and judging the past in accordance with the standards of the present. Uh, that, uh, it seems to me, is, uh, is basically unhistorical. So we have a lot of anachronism at work. Going back and, and saying, well, they weren't very democratic because they didn't allow women to vote. But of course, nobody was allowing women to vote in the uh, 18th century. And in fact, if you want to measure democracy, Americans had the largest electorate in the world at the time, and more people could vote, more people certainly could vote than England. And England was the only country in, the, in all of Europe that had elections. So uh, it's not good. You're not going to find too much democracy anywhere in the world uh, in the 18th century. And America does pretty well. Two out of uh, two out of three adult white men could vote. Uh, one out of six in England could vote. So this is this is what we're dealing with. And and the idea of going back and, and finding that people back then uh, discriminated against uh, women uh, makes no sense. Since everybody discriminated against women, they simply weren't involved in politics. But that's the nature of what you have. Present-mindedness is the great danger. And historical writing. You have to have the imagination to escape from your present and get back into the past. And that's why Hartley's statement is so wonderful. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. You wouldn't go to, to France and expect the French to be like us. That would You'd be a, a terrible tourist doing that. You wouldn't understand anything. You wouldn't understand the peculiarities of, a, of another culture. And that's how one should approach the past. I, I think that's one of the biggest problems we have. You belong to, or at least uh, have been associated with, the Consensus School of American History. Uh, can you explain that for us? Uh, it, it's an important I, argument I, to know, me. I don't know why I have I, I think it's because uh, my, my mentor, uh, Bernard Balin at Harvard, uh, got tied in with an intellectual approach to the revolution. I actually have a very different view. I think the revolution was quite radical and, and quite revolutionary. I think it changed our society in a fundamental way. Uh, and so I, I don't see where that's, uh, why I should be linked with a consensus school, but it's in the peculiarities of academic politics, I suppose that's what's happened. But it's it, totally false. Well, and I understand that, but I guess I guess a part of why people might think that, and uh, is that uh, as looking at your historical project, and there's no doubt you point to the radical nature of the revolution. That's part of the reason why that of your among your books won the Pulitzer Prize. But uh, but you also see American history uh, as unfolding in a direction that does go back. To the uh, to the founding era and is the outworking of that logic. Oh yes, I, I do think the founders are important, and uh, for the reasons we we talked about earlier, uh, they are the adhesive 
their principles are the adhesive that that holds us together. So in that sense, yes, if that's what is meant by consensus. But at the same time, I, I believe uh, the, the society, the, the American Revolution was a social revolution. Sure. The North, uh, emergence of a, of a middle class, uh, really quite, quite startling. By, by, by 1808, Pennsylvania was electing Simon Snyder as president, uh, as governor, uh, who had no education whatsoever. He, he was called a clodhopper by the elites. And he wore that as a badge of honor. And, and people began playing down any intellectual or social credentials uh, in the northern states. It became, uh, it became embarrassing to have gone to, to college, to gone to Harvard or Columbia or, or Princeton. And you hid your educational accomplishments if you wanted to be elected. That that's a transformation of an immensely important sort that took place. Uh, by the time you get to the Jacksonian era, the society has become, in Northern society in particular, has become thoroughly democratic. And, and uh, Jackson, the Jacksonians are arguing that anyone can hold any office. And it doesn't matter whether they went to college or had any education at all. Uh, this is really quite remarkable, and I think you have to account for how did that happen. Um, and I think the and the South remains really in the 18th century intellectually. They 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 still have slaves. Uh, they don't they denigrate work. Work is fit only for slaves. The North is celebrating work. It's the only society in the world at the time that celebrates work. Uh, everyone else is, is suspicious of people who work because they are too much involved with, they can never be good uh, political leaders uh, if, if you're working because you're too much involved in your own self-interest. So it's an extraordinary transformation that takes place in, in the Northern states. Uh, and so I, it's, it's a social revolution. Um, and, and so I don't see myself as a consensus historian at all, but that's helpful. who knows how, how, how things work here. No, that, uh, I understand that you've been involved in, uh, in no doubt, uh, uh, many academic, uh, political controversies simply by the fact you've taught in many of the leading academic institutions of the country and served on those faculties. So I realize I'm talking to a war scarred veteran, uh, in that respect, uh, <laughs> Yeah, speaking of of uh, of going back to your book, however, I want to go back uh, because you have a chapter entitled "Slavery and Constitutionalism," and uh, right. I, I find it bracingly honest. Can you kind of set out your basic argument there? Well, prior to the revolution, no one really, uh, in any major way, is criticizing slavery. There are a few isolated uh, Quakers who are not listened to uh, very much. But the, the, by and large, the, the colonists are accepting slavery as the, the lowest uh, status in a hierarchy of, of uh, vertically organized people. Uh, in the old society, in the ancien regime, if you will, uh, people were organized vertically. They knew who was above them, who was below them, but they didn't think in terms of class. They didn't think about people alongside them as we, as we would later. So they, and there were higher, and there were degrees of, of unfreedom all over the place. Half the society was unfree. Half the society uh, uh, was in, in one state or another, both white 
And then, of course, blacks are slaves, but there are lots of white servants, but they're not serving for life and it's not hereditary. But it, it, there's enough unfreedom. The, these white servants, were, of course, it, it would be for five to seven years. They couldn't uh, marry. They couldn't own property. They, they, they were owned, essentially, by their master. Uh, they could be sold and bought and so on. Uh, so they, there's so much unfreedom that people didn't see the peculiar nature of slavery uh, in the way they would later. The revolution changes everything because it does away with servitude. But by 1800, uh, servitude, white servitude is gone. And yet it had been flourishing in the previous period. Uh, and, and people thought, I think at the time of the revolution, that slavery would slowly decline too, would die away. Now, there are people in Georgia and South Carolina who don't think that at all. But there are people from Virginia northward who all are confident sooner or later, maybe it'll take uh, three or four decades, there'll be no slaves left. Um, what's happening in Virginia is interesting because people like Washington are, are finding that tobacco is no longer uh, very good for Virginia. The soil has been exhausted. And so they have to turn to wheat and the growing of wheat doesn't require the kind of labor that tobacco did. And so they have excessive slaves and they're beginning rent to rent them out in the cities, in, in Norfolk or Richmond. And when you rent out your slaves, you begin to think, well, this is akin to wage labor. And, and this, of course, leads people to think that slavery is, is going to slowly disappear. Uh, now, they couldn't have been more wrong, of course. There are more slaves after the revolution than there are before, but they were increasingly located in the South. And the Northern states, which had, uh, some of them had considerable number of slaves, but nothing like the plantation slavery of the South, uh, they, they, they abolished it. It's an extraordinary moment in the history of the West because there's no state uh, that I know of that legally authorized slavery that abolished it the way the American states did in 1776 and in the years following, right up by 1804, all the Northern states have abolished, legally abolished slavery. That's unprecedented in the history of the modern world. And, and uh, that, that, that now slavery was, as I say, was not deeply entrenched. It was not a plantation slavery of the South, but nonetheless, that's a momentous step taken. The Southerners, those who are going to keep slavery, are put on the defensive for the first time in history. Uh, slavery had been taken for granted so much through all of history up to that point. It's the American Revolution that makes history, or makes slavery a problem and, and puts it on the defensive. And, and now, now, of course, historians are indicting us for not having done anything about slavery in the South. But as I say, there was this misplaced confidence that it was going to die a natural death. Uh, that's why I think um, Madison, when he goes into the convention, is very scrupulous about ha not having the word slave or slavery mentioned in the Constitution. He wanted no sense of, of property and man, because I think there's a feeling that, well, if we wait a few generations and we won't have any slaves. Uh, that it's going to disappear. But as I say, they were so wrong about that. Uh, but that's, they were, mis, they were, they were misled. 
they, they were living with illusions. Uh, we live with illusions too. Uh, we just don't know what they are. And some historians looking back at us will say, how could they have believed that? But we're, we're just not aware of what's, what we're, what we're, what mistakes we're making. And, and they, they, so they were mistaken about the future, but it helps explain their attitude towards the constitution and the compromises they made. Uh, and there were a series of compromises uh, that came back to haunt them in the antebellum period, help uh, haunt the Northerners who were opposed to slavery uh, in, in the antebellum period, including the three-fifths clause and the fugitive slave clauses. Professor Wood, uh, we're deeply indebted to you. I speak on behalf of all those who have uh, had the honor of being in your classroom or uh, the privilege of reading your books. I want to thank you for uh, your massive contribution to our understanding of our own nation. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you take ideas so seriously and I think with such honesty. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Well, it's been my pleasure having a conversation with you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate Professor Gordon Wood sharing time with me today and thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmoeller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.